Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So uh, today we're going to go through the FDA risk-based medical device classification scheme. We're going to talk about preparing your submission and the differences in the type and timelines for those submissions. And then we're going to talk about pre-market approval and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So mistakes that you can avoid to uh, sabotage your submission. So we're going to start with the FDA risk-based medical device classification model. And this broken down into (coughs) four basic classes. You have class one, which is your lowest risk. These include things like um, band-aids, handheld surgical instruments. Um, They are uh, make up 45 to 50 percent of the regulated devices. Class two makes up another 40 to 45 percent. And these are the moderate risk devices, infusion pumps, wheelchairs, um, surgical masks, a hot topic of regulation right now. Class three makes up five to 10% of the market. These are the high risk, implantable, life-supporting, life-sustaining devices. And then there's a group of unclassified devices that are uh, pre-admitment or pre the regulations um, that that put in the classification for these other device types. so that, that's kind of a, a quirky class and that makes up less than 5% of, of devices on the market. So where it gets really complex is understanding the exemptions that apply to the different uh, um, classifications. Typically class ones are 510K exempt, but there's also a subset that are GMP exempt as well. So good manufacturing practices exempt then most of them require general controls. Um, and that, in, that can include registration and listing, um, basic quality system requirements. And there's even a small like five to 10 um, devices that are class one that do require a 510K. Class twos typically require a 510K, but again, the exemptions can get uh, a tricky to understand and a properly apply. Um, there are a subset of class twos that are exempt from 510Ks. There's also a subset that in addition to a 510K, you have other performance requirements. Um, Same thing for the class three PMA devices. In most cases, they're gonna require pre-market approval, but there is a small subset that is also PMA exempt and requires a 510K rather than a PMA. Um, and then at the, the unclassified devices, for the most part, are all 510K devices and functionally treated like class two in risk. So long story short, this is kind of all the combinations of classifications, um, special controls and exemptions that can apply. So you can't, it's not an easy process sometimes to understand and apply all of the correct controls for your device. And the mistake I typically see people make is that that they think that if they hit a certain set of exemptions, that they basically won the lottery. And even if you hit all of the exemptions, so you get a class one, 510K exempt and GMP exempt, you still have responsibilities for establishment registration every year, device listing every year, and your QMS has to cover a system for complaints reporting and quality records, no matter what. 
So preparing your submission. This can range everything from a walk in the park if you're in that class one 510k exempt to the complexity of running and training for an Ironman with a PMA. So we'll start with the 510k. This is the marketing application for low and moderate risk devices. It is based on a paradigm called substantial equivalence between the new device and the legally marketed device. And substantial equivalence involves the comparison of your intended use, your indications for use, your device features, performance testing, and choosing the right predicate is key. While it is tough and not a quick entry to market or commercialization for a 510k, this is more like running a half marathon rather than a marathon or Ironman. So there are four types of 510ks now. Um, there is the traditional 510K, which is how most devices come to market. It's heavily based on your predicate comparison. There's an abbreviated 510K that relies on a predicate comparison to a point, but it's really relying on special controls, namely guidance documents or recognized consensus standards to, um, to demonstrate its safety and effect effectiveness. Um, the newest pathway is an abbreviated 510K based on the safety and performance paradigm that FDA just correct, uh, um, created. This has to be very device type specific, and it is in only certain device are eligible. And I think it's only five or six that FDA has this special controls type of guidance documents out for, for this type of 510K. And then the predicate discussion here is even more limited in scope than the other two types of uh, 510Ks discussed so far. Uh, for a special 510K, uh, this is changes for specifically to your own legally marketed device. So this isn't appropriate for a device you acquired or you want to make a change to somebody else's device, but you don't wanna do your own 510K. You have to own the device. It's limited to three changes made at a time. In the past, I've seen an abuse of the special 510K program, and I've seen companies try to make, you know, upwards of 20 plus changes and trying to say, well, they're all moderate risk, I mean, minor risk changes, so they're all eligible for a special 510K. And the FDA recently revamped the special 510K program and, and kind of really whittled that down and limited it in scope to three changes. Um, and then it's also limited to the types of changes and technological features and performance testing that you can, can make under the scope of the special 510K. So we've been talking about substantial equivalence and how um, selecting a predicate and the predicate discussion is, is extremely important to that submission process. So you can see here, you know, we have our proposed device and we have three possible predicates that we can pick from. We've got one that, that seems like the obvious choice. Uh, it looks like green apple to green apple. We have an option where we're gonna have to discuss the difference between the green apple and red apple. And then we have one that looks like it's obviously not an appropriate predicate besides the fact that it's also a fruit. However, you know, everybody says you can't compare apples to oranges. Well, what if this was your predicate device? What does your predicate proposed, uh, what does your proposed predicate discussion look like now? Well, now you can use a paradigm called um, primary predicates and reference predicate devices. 
So we have our proposed device and it is functionally the same in almost all technological features, except for this one feature that we need to, um, to pull in for discussion to demonstrate that, hey, yes, we've got this orange juicy pulpy inside, which is different from our primary predicate, but it is a well-known cleared in terms of safety and technology. So therefore it doesn't raise any new questions of safety and efficacy for the agency. The next type of submission is called a de novo. Uh, a de novo um, has, it has no existing classification regulation or clear predicate, or it poses new technological features that go beyond the intended use or intended classification of existing devices. De novo literally means of new, and so it's the marketing process for novel medical devices. Uh, the result of the, the, the de novo process is that you get a classification regulation issued at the end of this process. So it actually produces new law, new product codes, and new paths to market for subsequent devices. And this is usually where the of new devices are down classified into 510K class two devices with special controls. And it's alternative to the PMA program where you obviously have devices that are not as high risk as life supporting and life sustaining devices. But again, a classification doesn't exist. It is a reduced regulatory and burden and cost compared to the PMA process. And you have to make an argument around the risk benefit profile of your device. It's one of the most important parts of the de novo. And the lift on this is a little bit more training for a marathon in terms of commitment and duration. Finally, you have a PMA for high-risk devices. Um, this is devices that have to have a very high and reasonable assurance of safety and efficacy. And the evidence has to stand on its own. It's not related to a substantial equivalence discussion or comparing yourself to other devices and technology on the market. This is a very long and arduous process to market, like training for the Ironman that has all the things in it. And you spend years training, years becoming an expert in all the different factors, and then a lot of time and money invested in getting, getting across the finish line to, to market. So the difference in the submission types, cost, and timeframes is the 510K ends up being uh, 500 to 1,000 pages the more 510Ks I, I do as time goes by, that is becoming more like 1,000 to 1,500 pages um, because of the changing burden for performance testing. The FDA timelines um, say that the traditional and abbreviated can get cleared in 90 days and special is 30. However, in reality, I tell people to prepare you know, for 100 to 150 days for the main two types of submissions and that, that you need to really brace for about five months going back and forth with the FDA on um, a traditional and abbreviated 5, 510K. You do not have to do a pre-approval inspection for 510Ks and the user fee if you get your small business designation, which you have to apply for 60 days in advance of putting your submission in, uh, is about $3,000. This results in you being able to use the term market clearance rather than market approval uh, at the result of the end of that process is the term that the FDA has said is okay. 
So de novo, again, if it's not, can't make a substantial equivalent argument, and uh, but it's of moderate safe, safety, you can do the de novo. It's going to depend on the, the de novo request. Um, FDA's published timeline is 120. I'm seeing that those are taking upwards of 200 days uh, to clear, and that's just agency time to review them. Um, this is going to result in if you're approved, you're going to get a classification designation, your fee is going to be $27,000, and you're going to get to say you have market clearance. If you're denied, you're going to have to go the PMA route. That fee is $90 plus thousand dollars. And that's when you get to say you have pre-market approval rather than pre-market clearance because the FDA has actually reviewed your data individually. You've had extensive clinical trials and they say that we have literally put our seal of approval here. Um, PMA, uh, again, you have to have uh, extensive scientific evidence, including clinical trials. The lift here becomes 30 plus three ring binders of data back in the old days when you used to have to print and ship. The FDA says that these take between 250 and 300. You really need to prepare for the better part of a year um, for a PMA. You do have to do a pre-approval inspection as a part of the pre-market approval process. And that does apply to all your manufacturing sites if you're using a contract manufacturer. Again, the fee is $90,000 um, plus or minus, and you get to say pre-market approval. Pre-market approval and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So um, these are common mistakes that I see companies make. So we have the stages of regulatory grief. And I actually have these on my website as services I provide. But, you know, grief always starts with denial, which often results in a poor pre-market strategy. Then people become angry because their uh, post-market commercialization plan is, is also poor and ineffective. Then they want to bargain with the FDA, but you can't divorce the FDA if you need to get medical device clearance in the U.S., Depression, you know, is bad. You have a bad design controls process that has likely created your denial and anger. Um, and then acceptance, if you begin with the end in mind, how you can avoid all these stages of grief. So denial, poor pre-market strategy. So I, I typically see startups that have to make pitches um, and I see investors that think, okay, uh, the company has a great pitch, check. The financial projections look great. There's a, 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 a market need for it, check. Uh, the device concept makes sense, check. And the company is confident in their own regulatory strategy. So you've got everything you need, right? Well, wrong. All these things do not really add up to doing the right things at the right time. I typically see, especially startups that have done the research themselves, and for non-regulatory people, regulations can be underestimated uh, and they can jeopardize your, your compliance. Again, your assumptions about what exemptions and controls apply to you may not be correct. Then they can also be overwhelming and they can impede your business success. If you don't understand how to navigate them properly, it can really slow you down. Or you can do the wrong testing or the wrong type of submission. And then doing too little too late this is where most people call us, where they, they say, oh, we're ready for our FDA submission and we just need you to put our 510K together. But this is where they should have called us. So the right time for your regulatory strategy is right in between your concept development, early feasibility and market 
validation because that's going to plan out what you need out of the performance for your prototype and because uh, it's going to outline your testing strategy, your budget, and your timeline. And then it's going to also predict what you need for that first round of investment to get that testing and the regulatory work done. You know, the right time for, you know, design controls is obviously when you're designing your device. It's the right time to do a pre-submission. Uh, and then you need to do all this on production equivalent runs. And you really need regulatory support throughout this whole process before you even get to the point where you're ready to do the actual 510K or de novo. After you get clearance or approval, you need uh, the, the rest of the QMS besides your design controls module to be built out. We typically do this while the uh, FDA is reviewing a submission. Then after your first production run and as the product is getting in the market, we need to do ongoing review of claims on your marketing materials. And then after your first sale and you, as your business starts scaling, you need a post-market surveillance plan. You need to start with some of the management controls, including management review and internal audit. And if you don't do the right things at the right time, this results in you having to build all of these things retrospectively and you have to get in your time machine and go back to your concept development to really get the documentation that you could have been building all along that's going to be needed for a successful submission. Other common mistakes I see is being in love with your own science. You know, I, I see a lot of companies apply what I call the, the transitive property of math. And this is where A equals B B equals C, so you can logically assume A equals C. Well, it doesn't work like that with the FDA. You have to do the work to prove that A equals B and B equals C before FDA will accept A and C are equal. And so I see a lot of people make assumptions about what their technology and their science implies um, and think that it's so logical that the FDA will be on board and they're not. If you're the inventor of the technology, but you've never run a business before, maybe you're not the best position for the CEO role. Maybe you're more of a CTO or CMO, and you need to get the right people with the complementary skill sets to round out your team and don't try to do it by yourself. And then if needed, are you willing to make compromise in the product offering technology or claims if it will build you a stepwise path to market and an easier market entry um, based off of a smaller claim set or a more limited technolo technological feature. So for the anger stage in post-market commercialization, you know, I, this is, uh, I always joke that this is the classic battle between R&D and quality. And uh, engineering typically tries to make a lot of justifications to not do testing. But the more stringent regulations become, you need to just stop fighting and start developing the scientific evidence needed for your submission to be successful. And some of those justifications are getting increasingly hard to, to make. Even to write a justification now, there's its own set of testing that you have to make to write the justification to avoid doing other testing. So it's just getting more complicated than the risk of it slowing down or stopping your submission is worth. So you need to evaluate if you need preclinical testing, if you need side-by-side -side bench testing, if you need performance um, to like recognize consensus standards, if maybe you need an animal or clinical model, and then usability engineering is, is an ever-increasing hot topic. 
I also see uh, uh, people misunderstand what that that their their marketing claims also have to be substantiated with testing. And if you're making marketing claims along the lines of twice as fast, improves, better than, all those things, you have to have uh, engineering testing to support those statements. Otherwise, it could lead to you being upclassified if you make new or previously unsubstantiated claims, or if you end up inadvertently implying new intended uses. It can also get you in trouble with when the United States is the FTC or the Federal Trade Commission, um, who also evaluate claims from a different perspective than FDA. So bargaining, you can't divorce the FDA. So the law pretty much says you two must marry. This is an arranged marriage. Your first impressions marry matter. And um, I see people who want to avoid the pre-sub or the 513G process because they would rather ask forgiveness and permission. But I say, okay, if you know you're going to get married, don't you want to at least meet once before you get to the altar? And it's important to me, the more conversations you can have with the FDA and your company about your technology and your product in advance of going into your actual submission, the more you de-risk your strategy by understanding what they want to see out of your submission and your testing or what they view as challenges. So here are some don'ts. Don't under-communicate. Again, not submitting a pre-sub at all. Uh, if you have anything new or novel about your device, you need to get the FDA used to the idea before you go and get their buy-in before you select your submission type and go to go into to a review. Uh, same thing, I've seen people over-communicate in when they're trying to get out of doing certain testing and write justifications. And so that they just kind of keep you know, given the FDA all these workarounds than trying to get real meaningful uh, feedback. And that kind of goes into the next one, covering your ears, not listening to what FDA has to say about your product or not, or you did your pre-submission on yourself and you really didn't understand what the FDA was asking for. Um, I make a joke that that everybody thinks that, oh, the, F the regulations are written in English. I read and speak in English, so I know what they say and what the requirements are, but I guarantee you FDA is a whole different dialect um, about what they meant when they told you you should do this or uh, any number of, of other terms that they use that they have their own meetings for. Uh, the other common mistake is assuming that your competitors have brought their product to market underneath the correct regulatory path. And this is where navigating those exemptions gets particularly tricky. I've had clients come to me and say, oh, so-and-so brought their, their device to market underneath this class one device. But while it was similar, it was very clear that the intended use of that competitor was exceeded the scope of what the FDA intended for the exemptions. Um, I've also seen clients who are well-connected politically try to make phone calls and have the, the FDA bullied into uh, making a, a favorable decision because they're the company has connections with so-and-so's secretary or whatnot of state, and that, that did not end well. So classic winning strategies, don't go in with an approach of asking for forgiveness. It's much better to ask for, for permission and, and get a collaborative relationship with the FDA. 
And so this can be a marriage made in hell or it can be a marriage made in heaven. And it's your choice of how you you view the FDA. If you're going to view them as a necessary evil versus a strategic partner and getting to market, it's going to significantly affect the success of your submission and your um, time to commercialization. So you really, from a business perspective, benefit from treating the FDA as a strategic partner. So depression, uh, bad design controls, your patent is not equal to your design controls. I can't tell you the number of times that somebody come, came to me and they, they had a patent and they said, oh, we're ready to get a 510K, but they didn't go through the design controls process or documentation methodology at all. All they had was a patent and a pro prototype. So I had, again, nothing to turn in. And then it turned out oftentimes their device wasn't manufacturable or it couldn't meet the design verification and validation requirements. So some don'ts and re related to design controls and developing your product, don't be an ostrich. If there's a new standard out, know, know that it exists, know what it requires. If you're not gonna follow it, be prepared with a rationale for why or why it's not appropriate. Go retro only in your home decor. Uh, don't go retro in trying to use old data to make justifications. Uh, particularly in the areas of biocompatibility. I've had clients give me things that look like they were written on a dot matrix computer back from the early 90s and say, here, turn this in as my biocompatibility report and write a justification. Don't uh, modify standards just so you can pass or change your acceptance criteria uh, after the fact because you failed your verification and validation. Uh, and then don't destroy evidence. This is the actual piece of uh, report from a client where they, they found this in a file where it had been taped back together and it's from the early 80s. Acceptance. This is how you're going to be successful is by beginning with the end in mind. So particularly in startups that are using subcontracting, uh, uh, their manufacturing, uh, they assume that just because they're uh, the brand owner and the, they're the legal manufacturer, they don't have to have a QMS because their contract manufacturer is responsible. And this is true only to a point, no matter what, you are responsible for a subset of uh, quality management systems. As a contract, man your contract manufacturer, if you select it, you need to make sure you select one that either already is registered with the FDA or can easily be. Uh, also see man the specification developer select design uh, houses or contract manufacturers that aren't capable or really don't want to register with the FDA. And then they get years into their investment with this partner and figure out that they really can't take them into commercialization. Assuming that once you get your submission cleared or approved that it's the end of the race, that's when the real work begins because you have to think your, about your quality management system and your good manufacturing practices, which are outlined in 21 CFR 820. So there's a whole level of documentation that you have to have to, and again, even if you're a specification developer that we have to put in place for you to fully commercialize. Michelle, we had we had a question. Is it possible to get in the FDA breakthrough device program with 510K? Technically, yes, but the breakthrough device is for, to treat either things that there are already cleared technologies. So just by the factor of what it was created for, it's very rare that, that it could result in a 510K instead of a de novo. 
how much effort would you put into finding predicates for a relatively novel device rather than going straight for the, the novel application? Uh, can you combine three or more devices as predicates for a new product? That would have to be an extremely strategic analysis, and it would definitely be something I would do a pre-sub for rather than trying a 510K right off the bat. And the predicate discussion is important even in a de novo. You're not necessarily using them at, for traditional predicates, but you're using them to build your benefit risk profile, which is the key for the de novo application. So you're comparing your product in terms of safety and efficacy and benefit and risk to other technologies that are out there, even though you're new and novel. Can you briefly explain about enforcement discretion? Uh, when can you ask about, about this? Uh, is it possible to be a class two under enforcement discretion? Uh, I have seen companies marketing as class one under, under enforce, uh, enforcement discretion. So that's um, when I put up that exemption chart, that's where it's super important to understand how all those exemptions come together. So enforcement discretion essentially means that the FDA is choosing not to enforce any type of oversight, including registration and listing. So these, a lot of general wellness devices and applications, um, several mobile medical devices, computer, uh, computer display products, uh, all fall under enforcement discretion depending on their intended use. But there's no such thing as a class two device that falls under enforcement discretion, because even if it is 510K exempt, it still has to fall under the special controls that are relevant to it, which include general controls of registration and listing. Even if they're 510K exempt, they have to have design controls applied. So just as any other class two device, and they have to have full quality management systems. So the term enforcement discretion wouldn't apply to a class two or really even to a class one device because both of those have general and special controls that are outside of for enforcement discretion. Thank you. Uh, what about the classification as a medical device accessory? Uh, what are the requirements and what would be the regulatory uh, pathway? That one is a little tricky as well. There's a special type of application that you can put in if you're trying to not be regulated underneath the same product code as the, the parent device. And this is more common where the parent device is a class two or class three, some class twos and the accessory you're trying to market clearly does should not come to market through a PMA like the parent device did um, because it's a lower regulatory class. But there's a special kind of pre-submission that you do to get your accessory classified with the FDA. The last question, is there a guidance or a tool available to help companies classify device? You really just have to know how to work the FDA databases and how to search your predicates, how to find their registration and listings, find how they brought their, their products to market, and then see if, if the way they did it in the regulation description is appropriate for your product. And you guys can go on my website and download what I call the regulatory pathway assessment, which is um, how I navigate and document the whole regulatory strategy and predicate search. It's www.leanraqa.com.
And then a sidebar, I, I also want to uh, reiterate what, what um, their experience was with the MDR, what, over a year ago. And that was like earlier in MDR. It's only worse now for small companies and startups. So if you think CE is in your future, you need to get in line like yesterday because you're going to be doing good if you can find anybody that will even quote you right now. But they're going to keep, everybody thinks they're going to keep pushing it down the road, but they've used this year to get ready and put some of the infrastructure in that wasn't there in 2020. So the commission has continued to get ready and industry has continued to think that they're going to push it. So it's going to be a really interesting paradox when everything finally hits the fan.